KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about Ed Asner, who died on Sunday. He was one of the most active progressives in Hollywood for decades, and he helped transform television. Also, the life and death of Ethel Rosenberg, the accused Adam spy, who was she before she was framed by the FBI, before she called their bluff and went to her execution? Anne Seba has written a really good book about that. It's called Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. But first, America's longest war came to an end on Monday as the last troops left Afghanistan 20 years after we started fighting there. How much have the disasters around the Afghan pullout hurt Joe Biden and his agenda? How much will it hurt Democrats in the midterms next November? For comment, we turn to Alan Minsky. Of course, he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, the grassroots group that works with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Hi, Alan. Great to be here, John. Well, the headlines are all about Joe Biden's approval rating taking a dive. A month ago, he was 10 points ahead at 53% approval. Now he's tied for equal amounts of approval and disapproval at 43%. It's the lowest point of his presidency. Uh, the Afghan pullout, especially the suicide bombing that killed 13 American Marines, have hurt him badly, or at least that's what the headlines and the pundits are saying. Here's some samples. Americans are losing faith in Biden. That's CNN. The political tides are turning against Biden. That's The Hill. Bad news for Democrats. That's CNBC. There's lots more like this. What do you think? First of all, I think he made a very brave decision to uh, proceed with pulling out from Afghanistan. To stand behind the decision unwaveringly, I think in time we will look back on this and applaud it even more. However, in terms of declining poll numbers, I suppose not that surprising. He's the guy who's on the watch when this is happening. I don't know how much damage it will do in the long term because I'm not sure how. Uh, focused Americans than the domestic American population really is on foreign policy in general right now. Though, Correct. Uh, maybe their primary foreign policy concern revolves around COVID and it's spread around the world and whether we're past or still stuck inside the COVID pandemic. But how much uh, people are thinking about uh, these 20-year foreign wars? Um, obviously, it was quite a train wreck. We know train wrecks are always going to sort of leave the news. Um, and it was rather spectacular train wreck for this short period where the withdrawal takes place, things look catastrophic. The Taliban, who you know really are, of course, um, could could come out of a 21st century central casting uh, villain uh, in many people's minds, um, less so in others, but you know so 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 be it. We know that CNN and so on are gonna do wall-to-wall coverage at the height of this and in all likely for, likelihood forget about it. Yeah, um, in two weeks, in I agree. Month, in 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 two months, Fox may be a little different. Fox may take this and try to do what they did with Benghazi. Um, you know, Biden has been somebody across his career who has been uh, involved in you know uh, spoken out of, on major foreign policy decisions. Of course, he was vice president, was engaged in foreign policy matters, was seen, of course, as a you know a responsible steward by the American foreign policy establishment coming into the job. 
Um, and I do think there is the question, not just Vox News, but how much did he royal the foreign policy establishment and the Pentagon establishment? And will there be some continual political blowback? I don't doubt it will be in, in the talking points continually from the people who are trying to build a case against Joe Biden, but will the public care? And I don't know that they will so much about the critique that's making of Biden. And will they actually um, view it as a brave decision and a good decision, something that had to end, and he had the fortitude to achieve that end? Yeah, I think it's very important that support for going back to Afghanistan is about zero right now. Even Republicans don't want to continue the war in Afghanistan. So uh, that is the big picture. And I think people know that that big picture. And the other big picture is you're quite right in saying that foreign policy is very seldom the center of American politics, certainly the center of American voting, is about domestic issues. And Biden knows that the only time that foreign issues are really important in, in elections is if lots of Americans are killed, like 58,000 in Vietnam, or if lots of Americans are taken hostage, like 52 in Iran in, in 1980. I think if, and that was during a presidential election, of course, that Carter lost. If, if ISIS took 52 Americans hostage now and held them until next November, I think that would really hurt the Democrats in the midterms. Uh, I don't think short of that, uh, I think you're quite right. They, these headlines are going to be gone in uh, a month, and there's going to be a whole bunch of other things that Americans are going to be thinking about uh, between now and next November. Right. And, in, in, of course, in nine days' time, uh, it'll be the 20th anniversary, a big year anniversary of September 11th. And, of course, that sparked uh, an era of, of American history where there was considerable focus on foreign policy. Uh, lasted uh, you know five to seven years as being a central focus, and then the, you know the international financial markets uh, imploded with the implosion coming from the American marketplace, the housing market. So that really took that off center stage, and that era ended. I think in the Cold War we had a much stronger focus on foreign policy matters, um, but since you know the end of the Cold War, and other than that period in the wake of uh, September 11th. And I think one of the reasons that uh, it doesn't really resonate as a uh, electoral issue as much as it used to is there simply are too many domestic crises. I think the lives of Americans are too complicated. And, um, you know, when it does come to international issues, I think the thing that probably going forward will be foremost in people's minds, of course, the pandemic, uh, but also climate change. And, uh, and I think that's very different than uh, previous eras in American history from the Bush-Cheney years in the wake of 9-11 and then going back to the Cold War. And certainly Joe Biden knows this. He knows that we live in an era where domestic issues are dominant, and that's why he's putting all of his political capital into this $3.5 trillion mm -hmm. bill that we've been calling the, reconcilia the reconciliation bill. Well, there's one other thing, though, that, that of course, if you are going to be thinking a lot about, say, the results of the midterm elections and what this last month, last few weeks has meant for Joe Biden, he does look old and he does look frail. And, you know, unfortunately, politically, that's never really a winning hand. Uh, I mean, it sort of worked for Roosevelt <laughs> late in his time, but uh, that was a very different circumstance. And um, uh, again, uh, what that's going to say about, you know, who's leading the Democratic Party, that's going to raise a lot of questions, you know, 2022 midterm will not be helped by the sense that Biden may not be the nominee in 2024. 
Clearly, he's very, very proactive administration. But does he want to be out in front of the cameras in a crisis mode like this? And uh, yeah, sadly, I think uh, it's it's not a situation that's ever really going to boost his uh, his uh, polling numbers. But I have to say, a lot is going to happen in the next thirteen or fourteen months, mm-hmm. uh, and that especially around um, these social welfare and climate uh, proposals, and Biden's plan, which is no secret, is to make these the center of American politics mm-hmm. and um, give Democrats a strong pl- uh, a strong list of achievements to run on. Um, and I would like to talk about that for a minute, where we stand right now on this. Congress is in recess. They're going to come back in another week or two. And, and now is when they have to pass this. The House has to pass this reconciliation bill and, you know, expand Medicare to cover dental, vision and hearing and bring equality, early childhood education to all and free community college and action on climate change. Um, and the biggest obstacle right now seems to be these 10 conservative Democrats in the House. I am i don't think that they're going to vote against, you know, uh, expanding Medicare to cover dental vision and hearing because of what Biden left people behind in Kabul. They're, they have other reasons behind their uh, their positioning here uh what do we know we've talked about them a little bit before but what do you think where do what's going to happen when they come back you know it's so interesting john i do think there's something interesting about what biden did in afghanistan and its relationship to this particularly the reconciliation bill with 3.5 trillion but even put the other infrastructure bill because don't forget for a long time uh you know this week was going to be infrastructure week that phrase became a joke in american yes. politics yes it never was arrived at in donald trump was out there campaigning about our infrastructure as was um uh the person who didn't get the democratic nomination in 2016 our crumbling infrastructure i should say in a brooklyn accent like bernie so these two you know alternative uh, uh rebel candidates spoke about the need to address infrastructure well, four years passed and, and trump never got to it um, now, what is coming out in the bipartisan bill does resemble what we might have seen um, from the Trump administration, a lot of private public partnerships, far too much uh, is uh, uh, not challenging um, uh, the fossil fuel industry in the you know half a trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, and uh, again, not enough uh, renewable energy uh, infrastructure being developed there either. Um, but then in the $3.5 um, trillion reconciliation bill, all those things are true, by the way. The, the brick and mortar infrastructure stuff is, is really not going to get lifted up adequately through this. This is what's being referred to largely as human infrastructure. Right. Um, and uh, But there's some really big ticket items, and they are not only progressive, but they're redistributive. But I do want to hold on to this point about the relationship between Afghanistan and such an ambitious domestic agenda that really lifts back into the game progressive fiscal spending. Biden administration is um, doing something that hasn't really been seen a lot since, um, uh, certainly not going in a direction we like politically, but he's trying to govern. And and that's odd. Um, He's shaking (laughs) things up. He's actually going against the establishment in a number of ways. Well, the establishment he went against in Afghanistan we, we know who the people are who objected to it. They're, they're sort of as this, 
network of think tanks that drive U.S. foreign policy in the status quo mode who were fine with these forever wars. They expected them to go on forever. Those are, of course, have a kind of symbiotic relationship to, um, you know, uh, military contractors um, and then also the Pentagon and the Pentagon establishment. And, you know, Biden, I know Trump set this up. Well, they didn't like it when Trump was setting it up. But there probably still was a belief that this thing wouldn't end. And Biden has ended it. So there's that. Now, in the reconciliation package, what's he going up against? Well, first and foremost, he's going up against one of the definitional aspects of American politics in the 21st century, which is the lobbying industrial complex. When they're saying that the Medicare is going to get to negotiate drug prices, the amount of money that takes out of the pockets of pharmaceutical industry, well, they have some of the most powerful lobbies, lobbyists and lobbying uh, operation up on Capitol Hill. They're not going to be quiet over these next few weeks. This is really going to be quite a battle. And um, these are lobbyists and corporations that have funded um, the right wing of the Democratic Party, not just the Republican Party. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's going to be a battle. But Biden has, for what it's worth, again, staked a claim to supporting a really healthy set of packages that go against the lobbying industrial complex. And so he's, the administration is trying to govern him for that, I, I applaud him. And um, a little bit more than I would have ever thought from the Biden administration. Um, and again, though, however, much like the unions pushing Roosevelt, we can thank the progressives, the squad, Bernie Sanders, Pramila Jayapal. And, um, and also, you know, you could go a little further out from that too. Uh, I think certain players, uh, you know, maybe more establishment members of the progressive caucus Longstanding members who, um, you know, have uh, have always wanted probably to see progressive Keynesian spending come back. You know, I'm thinking of uh, you know Levin up in Michigan, James McGovern in Massachusetts, uh, Jan Schakowsky, uh, some of the California delegation too. Of course, Rokana, a little bit more of a guy who really looks at some of the innovative stuff around science and technology too in a very progressive way. But a lot of our, you know, like Katie Porter, Ted Lieu, people like that, they um, they actually are you know, beyond the squad, they're there and they create a big block in the Democratic caucus for Pelosi. And then their, their similar figures in the, in the Senate are there to get back up to Schumer to see this happen and to try to make a big shift in American politics. So just in, in closing here, I want to go back to the midterm elections, which are a little more than a year from now. Um, Here's a here's a quiz. If you were to rank the most important obstacles to Democrats holding on to their House majority, the most important obstacles, I got four possibilities. Which would you pick? Number one, Biden's low approval ratings following his Afghan pullout. Number two, the Republican dark money funding advantage. Number three, Republican voter suppression. Number four, Republican-controlled redistricting and gerrymandering? Well, the first one would be the one that matters the least by far. Um, and um, yeah, boy, I mean, we could face something in California because of Republican enthusiasm. And one of the problems we're having right now, um, I mean, look, I, I actually believe that, um, I mean, governing is difficult. This whole idea of we're gonna change things from how they are and we're gonna make something new and make something better uh, in a society with such powerful entrenched interests as the United States have. Yeah, there's gonna be a lot of turbulence or some turbulence uh, with that. 
Um, having said that, um, the, one of the two wings of the Democratic Party is pretty asleep still. And that was the sort of more moderate wing that was very mobilized and um, just uh, their hair was on fire about Donald Trump for a five-year period, four years when he was president, right? Um, and with Trump gone, you can just sort of see them not engaging at the level that they were previously. I think progressives have remained quite engaged. There's always, um, you know, somewhere on the left, there's going to be some internecine fighting because, you know, that's our style. That's our fashion. I, I, I try to not participate in it, but so many of my peers and people I respect and am allied with seem to not be able to give it up, right? Anyway, that's going on, but progressives are mobilized and the Republicans are mobilized and the Republican right is mobilized. And, you know, to go inside the algorithms that drive you to uh, certain media in Republican America, I don't have a big appetite for it. Um, a few people I know do, but as my understanding is they've remained very motivated. This is why they could win potentially and defeat Governor Newsom in a recall where you know, the Republicans can't get past 35% in any other state election because their base is motivated. And I think a fourth thing in that is what happened when Trump was president, which is, as we saw from the results of the presidential election, they found a whole new pool of people to register. And the Republican machine, well-funded by dark money indeed, um, is so efficient at getting people out. They weren't in 2018. Um, and I think that was because there was some, you know, they, I think, there was a certain part of the Republican coalition, I think, at that hour that was not really that taken with how Trump was 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 uh, operating as a as a president. They would vote for him versus a Democratic president for, uh, two years later. But, you know, a portion of the Republican base wasn't happy with with Trump. You saw his approval ratings never really were going about 40 in his first two years, stuff like that. But not, in 2020, they found. 10 million more people that vote for Trump. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And, and that, that is that is an incredible uh, thing to overcome for the Democrats in the midterms if, the, if that base remains even close to as motivated as they still seem to be as of that time. We hope that the infrastructure bill will have such a powerful impact on not just the general macro economy, but in communities across the country that it can reverse some of those things. And... Uh, and again, because, you know, we, we have to figure out a way to break through to these tens of millions of people and say that these political strategies will produce a better life for everybody in the society. And that's really our work for the next 12 to 15 months. Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America. They're online at pdamerica.org. Thank you, Alan. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the Rosenberg-Adams spy case. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed in June 1953 for the crime of conspiracy to commit espionage. They left behind two young sons. The execution was shocking at the time and still is, especially since the U.S. government had not executed a woman in nearly 100 years and never in peacetime. Now, 70 years after the trial, there's a really good new book out about Ethel. It's called Ethel Rosenberg, an American Tragedy. The author is Anne Seba. 
She's a former foreign correspondent for Reuters and an award-winning biographer. Her books include Les Parisiennes, about French women under the Nazi occupation. She's also a senior research fellow at the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. She lives in London, but we reached her today on Crete. Anne Seba, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. First question, how come you're on Crete and we're not? <laughs> well, I'm very sorry about that, um, but I have to be there for, for reasons I, I won't bore you with. It's actually a wonderful place to work, and I've brought a lot of my Rosenberg books out here and done much of the research and the writing while I've been here. Uh, let's start with what historians now know about the Rosenbergs. Julius was a spy for Russia during World War II, but he did not give them the secret of the atom bomb. They had real atomic scientists at Los Alamos helping with that. And Ethel was innocent. She was framed by the FBI with the help of her brother, David Greenglass. The review of your book in the London Review of Books begins, no one thought Ethel would be executed. Is that true? I think that is true. You have the Deputy Attorney General who says at the end, she called our bluff. And J. Edgar Hoover himself, who was so keen to try and get both of the Rosenbergs to name names, realized, as we'd say today, the optics of killing a woman, a mother, really wouldn't look good. And he tried somehow not to execute Ethel, but she was not prepared to name names and she was not prepared to confess. What could she confess to? Why is it important today to understand Ethel's motivation? Why did she think it was a good thing to support the Soviet Union during World War II and, and into the early 50s? Because we're talking here, of course, about Stalin and Stalinism. Yes, I, I don't make any bones about the story. Look, it's really simple. As you said, we now know Julius was a spy. He was a spy ring recruiter and he was involved in passing secret information. Ethel was his wife. She was certainly part of the conspiracy in the sense that she knew and she probably approved, but it's not a crime to know something. And I think that's why it's really interesting that the government knew all along the case against Ethel was weak, shaky at best, she was arrested and charged so that she could be used as a lever against Julius. It was hoped because they had this secret information and we now know that that was called Venona, the Venona decrypts, but they couldn't, the, the government and the FBI could not release what was known in the Venona decrypts because they hoped to use it subsequently. So they were acting with one hand tied behind their back and they ultimately concluded that actually um, they had to go through with this. But it matters, the resonance is, because when a government willingly decides that the life of a citizen is expendable, then that's something that we all need to be concerned about. And, and Ethel was used, she was used as a pawn, as a lever, and the government knew that they did not have strong evidence against her. In many ways, Ethel was completely ordinary. 
daughter of immigrants, a poor Jew growing up in the 30s on the Lower East Side. But in some ways, she was extraordinary. Let's start with her singing voice. Well, I think she was extraordinary because she grew up in such poverty with no encouragement from her family and really was single-minded in pursuing what she enjoyed, which was singing and acting. So her mother decided that she was actually a snob because she liked singing Italian arias and she was interested in Russian peasants. And the, her, her mother, Tessie Greenglass, Ethel's maiden name was Greenglass, never encouraged her in any of this, but Ethel pursued these aims nonetheless. I think she was extraordinary because everything she did, she put herself into wholeheartedly. So when she became involved in a strike in 1935, and by then she was a communist, she was instrumental in almost leading the strike and discovered at that point that actually she could achieve something. She, she could do something important. So her communism, it should be said, was twofold. On, uh, in, in the first place, she was an idealist. She believed in improving a lot of impoverished people like herself on the Lower East Side. But it was also a way to beat fascism. And in 1936, that's really the crucial year Ethel and Julius had friends who went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. And so she threw herself wholeheartedly into her communism at that point. Later on, when she became a mother in wartime, she decided that being a good mother and a better mother than her own had been was very, very important. So she went to mothering classes. She tried to be the best mother that she could be. She thought that everything was discoverable through books. And as many of us may know, our children don't always respond to what we we read in books. So, you know, she was thrown off course. She wasn't um, particularly strong in a health sense. She was born with scoliosis, a back problem, and that gave her migraines. So um, she was extraordinary to that extent. And you have a wonderful phrase, the Ethelness of Ethel. Explain exactly what that meant in this context. Well, I think if you look at her determination to be a good mother, for example, she would get on the floor and play with her children. She encouraged them to call her by her first name. And many of the other mothers where she lived decided that she was actually peculiar. But, um, you know, this wasn't a normal way to behave if, if you had a play date. I think her single-mindedness, which she learned through these other aspects of growing up, when she was in prison in her early 30s, she was only 37 when she was electrocuted. And I think this determination, I talk about the ethelness as a work in progress, because I think she was learning how to write. Some of her letters from prison are extraordinarily moving, and she was reading a lot and trying to improve her writing. I've been fortunate to meet the child psychologist who helped her with Michael, her first son, who really was a challenge. And the psychotherapist believes that if Ethel had lived longer, she probably would have trained herself as a psychotherapist. So I talk about the Ethelness as a work in progress. I think mm -hmm. she was a clever girl. She skipped a year at school and she was determined to try and make something of her life. And as we all know, that didn't work out, but I think she would have done had she lived. 
The person who did the most to get her executed was her brother, David Greenglass. He was spying for the Soviets at Los Alamos, and he tried to get the Russians the secret of the A-bomb, but the sketches that he, uh, what, six years later, said that he sent are pathetically simple and, and useless. The most important thing he said, he took back in a 2001 interview when he admitted he had lied on the witness stand when he said that Ethel typed the key documents. How could he send his own sister to the electric chair? Well, the role of Ethel's younger brother, seven years younger, David Greenglass, really is why this is such a family tragedy, a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions, really. But um, let's go back to the charge, first of all, because you, you said in your introduction that Ethel was innocent. I actually don't find the words innocent and guilty particularly helpful because they're such binary terms. So they were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. And that's because conspiracy is almost impossible to disprove in this case. Of course, Ethel, having a close relationship with her husband, Julius, would have talked to him. And really, it's clear that Ethel knew what Julius was doing. And as I say, probably approved of it. It's the second half of the charge that I take issue with, espionage. There is no evidence that Ethel was involved in spying. The KGB did not have a code name for her. Nobody believes that the KGB was dealing with her directly. So the government has a problem, or the judiciary at any rate, the, the judge and the jury, how are they going to prove Ethel and Julius guilty. And here's where these multiple miscarriages of justice come into the trial. And that's really what I think my book is about. If, if there's one message, it's about the importance of the rule of law, which was flagrantly disregarded in this case. And so the judge, even though he knows that they're being tried for conspiracy to commit espionage, repeatedly accuses them of treason. They were not being charged for treason. They couldn't be because it, it was during wartime and also because the rules in a case of treason are quite different. You have to provide two witnesses to any overt act. And yet both the prosecution and the judge frequently use this word treason. So the jury felt that they were dealing with a case of treason. But back to David. So there is no overt act other than what David comes up with, which is perjury. He invents a story to provide an overt act to show that his sister was guilty. Why does he do it? Because it's a plea bargain. His own wife, Ruth, is never indicted and he serves a much lesser term in the event he's released after about um, nine and a half years. What David says, and we now know this is invented because his grand jury testimony has been released and he's done, he did interviews when he came out of prison. He only died in, in 2014, so the grand jury testimony was released in 2015. And the story that David invents, the perjury that sends his sister to her death, is that he saw Ethel type up the notes that he brought back from Los Alamos. 
And he admitted afterwards that actually he couldn't remember who did the typing, maybe nobody did the typing, or maybe his own wife had done it. Now, the typewriter is absolutely key to this whole evidence. And that's why it, it's David's perjury that is the key evidence. The last two years of Ethel's life at Sing Sing, she spent in solitary confinement. Today, we're told there are more than 80,000 men, women, and children held in solitary confinement in prisons in the United States, some for years, some have been there for decades. There's a campaign now to end solitary con confinement. What did you learn about solitary from Ethel's letters? How extraordinarily resilient she was. I mean, she did sink into a period of depression. And amazingly, at one point, she was allowed to see her, her own psychiatrist her own psychiatrist came to visit her. I didn't think he was much help. Her husband was brought occasionally in a cage and sat outside. What I learned about Ethel, as I say, is partly the resilience and, and the courage. Ethel was a brave woman who came up against incredible forces of history that she could not possibly overcome. I think it also meant that she had great difficulty in fighting a good defense because her time was spent either worrying about the sons and, and they had this joint defense. So there simply was not enough time to think clearly, but the letters to her sons are remarkably evocative of how she tried to prepare them for a life when she recognized she wouldn't be there. And I think being in solitary confinement was what ultimately persuaded her that the only legacy she could leave them, obviously there was nothing material she could leave them. So the only legacy as she saw it was loyalty. And she believed that loyalty to Julius trumped betrayal, which is what she saw all around her, and particularly the betrayal of her mother and her brother, the betrayal of the Greenglass family. And, and I think that being in solitary gave her that time where she decided there was no other way out. So at the time of the executions, their son Michael was 10, Robbie was six. That's always the worst part of it. I have friends who say, if I were forced to choose between my children and my political values, I'd choose my children. You've told us what Ethel's thinking about this was. How do you understand Ethel's choice? I don't think she had a choice. I think she was completely trapped. How on earth could she have lived with her sons if she had confessed to something that she had not been an active part of, which would have sent her husband to his death? Would her sons have valued her, respected her, been able to live with her? No. And I think she understood that very clearly. One more question. This story is so terrible, it's kind of unbearable, but you spent years with it, researching it and writing about it. What was that like for you? How did you do it? Well, um, I think it's important to try and put historical perspective to all of this. I think we know communism is a discredited philosophy today, but it still needs to be understood. You know, of course you can say with hindsight 
that Ethel was foolish to stick with the Communist Party after the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Of course, that's easy to see now. But as a historian, you need to understand what the pressures were at the time. You need to understand why in the 19, late 1940s, America was so terrified of Russia having an atomic bomb, which they thought Russia wouldn't have for at least five years. So make the comparison between Klaus Fuchs, who was the beginning of how all this unraveled. He was a real spy, a real physicist who passed on important information to the Soviet Union. And the British arrested him very quietly. They didn't make a big fuss about it. They gave him 14 years, which was the maximum in England for espionage, and he served nine and a half. And compare that and how, of course, the Klaus Fuchs case unraveled, leading to Harry Gold. Harry Gold, the courier, led to Green Glass. And how when, when the Americans discovered that Russia had exploded an atomic bomb, they were absolutely terrified and they made as much noise as possible and as much publicity as possible when they eventually arrested Julius and Ethel because they believed that this would make them look strong. And, and of course, it's political. It's it's tied up with the Republicans wanting to get back into power. And, and one needs to understand this real fear and not just brush it off as McCarthyism. Of course, it is that. But the terror that, you know, children might be being sent to shelters if Russia really was going to explode a bomb. So I, I think the historical background makes it so important. And of course, the individual story is is what sheds light on, on the historical background. And Seba, her book is Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. It's really good. And thanks for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places, and she teaches at the USC School of Cinema. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. KPFK lost a great friend and supporter on Sunday when Ed Asner died. He was a political activist. He also had a TV show. You've actually written a book about this. Indeed, I have. I mean, it began life as my PhD dissertation and then turned into uh, a book published in 1989 by California Press called Primetime Families, which was about imagery of family uh, in television, um, and both uh, both the Mary Tyler Moore show in which Ed Asner starred, um, and Lou Grant, uh, which is his character, spun off into a one-hour drama, also set in the world of journalism, were right at the center of my book because they were enormously influential shows. Um, and I've spent the last 
couple of days revisiting the Mary Tyler Moore show about which I'll talk in a minute. Um, Ed Asner was was it comes from came from Kansas. Uh, his real name was Yitzhak, not Ed, um, but obviously that's not a great stage name or, or TV name. <laughs> not in America. Uh, yeah, not in America. And uh, he began his acting career in theatre. Um, was in Chicago for a while, the mecca of of theatre, and then took off for New York. And he said many times in interviews that it never occurred. To him that his reputation would be made in comedy, let alone one of the best loved comedies on television. Both the Mary Tyler Moore show and Lou Grant were seminal shows in the sense that um, they really represented the shift in the 1970s from um, television consensual families like Leave It to Beaver and, and uh, you know, other shows like that where nothing terrible really happened beyond people not doing their homework <laughs> to um, shows that tackled contemporary social issues and were, instead of being addressed to a, a huge mass audience, a blob of an audience, were addressed to youngish liberal um, professionals and reflected the kind of issues that, that they um, were interested in or were thought to be interested in. Um, in both shows, Ed Asner plays a patriarch, although the nature of his patriarchy shifts from one uh, to the other. When you look at him, you immediately think of a Paddy Chayefsky play. He was short and stubby um, and, uh, and had beautifully hairy arms. His sleeves were always rolled up. Um, and although he was a, not a handsome man, there was something of a kind of dadly sexiness about him that really appealed to, to women. Um, in that show, in the Mary Tyler Moore show, he plays a television producer. Mary Tyler Moore plays the young fledgling associate uh, producer. He gives her that title name, although really she, at the beginning of it, she fetched a lot of coffee. Um, he was crusty and grumpy uh, in this role. Um, and really, he was kind of an old school journalist who was being dragged into the modernity of the 1970s and especially into uh, Mary Tyler Moore's evolving feminism herself as a single woman in her 30s. His counterpart in television was, uh, his right-wing counterpart was Archie Bunker in Of All in the Family, also one of the most popular shows of that time, but he was a lefty. And his contrast on the show was, of course, Ted Baxter, um, the, uh, shall we say, not greatly gifted in the cerebral department news announcer. And uh, it was a much better written show than All in the Family. And he got to enact a range of uh, emotional and social, social styles as a man who was, you know, forthright to a fault and uh, uh, very grumpy and surly and not inclined to be in the spotlight, his happiest in the background. He was really wonderful in these, but also with an increasing vulnerability as he finds himself anachronistic to the social mores of the 1970s. And if I may, I'll give you a couple of my favorite moments of Ed Asner playing uh, Lou Grant. 
Um, Lulu has been happily married for to Edie for about 25 years, but suddenly his wife leaves him wanting to find herself. And he has absolutely no idea what to uh, do with himself. And in this episode, he shows up every single night at Mary's apartment uh, expecting dinner. <laughs> he doesn't expect anything else, but he expects dinner and conversation until she has to set a boundary and he's just completely nonplussed. Um, it's a wonderful performance. Similarly, a little later, um, they have a date together where Mary's so frustrated with the, the 2000 dates she's been on in 20 years. Uh, it's suggested to her that she should date her boss. Well, you can imagine how that ends up. <laughs> one should never date one's boss or indeed anyone that one works with. Um, and there is a, a scene in that movie where they finally, in a very embarrassed way, because um, uh, James L. Brooks's style of comedy was always a comedy of, of verbal embarrassment. They end up with this kiss in the middle of which they both burst into giggles and go and go back into a talking shop. <laughs> um, another one is when Lou has to stand in for Ted Baxter, who's on the strike, um, and Lou has to deliver the news. He gets absolutely roaring drunk and mumbles the news so that nobody nobody could. Hear hear it. Um, and then there's the famous episode of the death of Chuckles the Clown, who um, is trodden on by a rogue elephant at the circus <laughs> who tries to shell him. Um, and uh, none of the team, <clears throat> especially Lou, can resist uh, bursting out laughing in the rehearsal for this when it comes to the actual funeral, Mary, who's been terribly righteous about not laughing at, at death, cannot contain her own laughter. And Lou has this gleeful cunning about him that I think is one of his most fetching um, things. And then, of course, there's the, the very last show in which the station, um, this half-assed station is, is, uh, is closed down. And uh, the important thing about the show is that it was very much a work family at a time when the domestic family was was really kind of falling apart. And there were many, many other shows that copied it. Um, and Ed Asner became the personification of um, an old school man, both at home and at work, who... Um, all everything that he stands for is being stripped away um, by feminism, but he has to learn to become more democratic. Um, um, he's always a mensch from start to finish, but um, he becomes uh, much more democratic in his attitude to his workers. And of course, uh, Mary in particular, who becomes a real associate producer and then the producer of the evening news. There's a wonderful performance that established his reputation and he was so popular in that show uh, that they turned him into a one-hour drama uh, where he plays the city editor of the Los Angeles Tribune. In fact, I think I caught a couple of, they must have shot it at the LA Times because I saw some very familiar sites there. And there the, the mood shifts obviously to something much more serious, um, where it's more directly concerned with social issues like rape and poverty and employment always come up in, in the paper's coverage. Um, and we're always asked to consider, in fact, by Lou, because he is the moral center of that 
movie and Ed Asner shifted really quite seamlessly into that role um, where he's an emblematic of a reassuring old school professionalism in a world that, that has been um, cynically overtaken by corporations. Um, the Mary Tyler Moore Show is available on Hulu uh, from season two onwards. And Lou Grant, um, you can find in lots of places that I can't name. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Well, Ed Asner was also well known for his political activism, even though that was left out of many of the obits that have appeared in the papers in the last few days. He was a democratic socialist long before most Americans learned about Bernie Sanders in the 80s. He was a key member of the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, DSOC, which was the predecessor to DSA, and he paid a heavy price for his activism. He was a founding member of Medical Aid for El Salvador uh, in the Reagan era, which aided rebels fighting the U.S.-backed military dictatorship there. Uh, and even though his Lou Grant show had won 13 Emmy Awards, it was canceled by CBS after he went to Washington in 1982 and presented a fundraising check for $25,000 to Medical Aid for El Salvador. After that, a campaign urging the boycott of Lou Grant's sponsors was launched, and some of the sponsors did withdraw their ads, Kimberly Clark, Vidal Sassoon, and Cadbury. Two weeks after that, Lou Grant was canceled by the network. He always said the network's decision was the result of CBS chair William Paley's close relationship to Reagan. And he later said, quote, I never thought at the time I'd work again. He also picketed with uh, 11,000 striking air traffic control workers in 1981 in their dispute with the Reagan administration over pay and ours, he was a big a vocal public supporter of the ACLU, Death Penalty Focus, Amnesty International, and Peace Now, which supports a two-state solution in Israel and Palestine. And of course, he recorded promos for KPFK. In 2010, Ed Asner was asked by the Progressive Magazine what he thought about socialism. He said, quote, I think we need more of it. Ed Asner, he won more Emmys than any man in the history of TV. He died on Sunday. So what do you have for us for Labor Day weekend? Oh, for Labor Day weekend, I have the big scary S word, which is a rather uh, nifty documentary about um, how terrified uh, and hostile many Americans are to the word socialism. Now, I come from two countries where socialism is a perfectly respectable, if sometimes rather dull, um, <laughs> position uh, to be on the political spectrum. And it doesn't make people jump in the air and threaten to kill you. So I was very surprised to come to America, uh, where somebody actually threatened to kick my butt when I identified as a democratic socialist. How rude. Yes, very rude. He did. Well, he never carried doubt on his, on because I put on my best Princess Margaret accent and said, this really won't do, you know. Um, they go out into the streets rather amusingly for, and ask people for their definition of socialism. And I just wanted to lift out a couple. Um, the director is Yael Bridges, who I'm not familiar with, but she's certainly very sympathetic to the big scary S word. But one young woman, when asked, roared with laughter, and then she said, I think it's a more mediocre form of capitalism. <laughs> Whereas 
Another young man said he's actually wasn't so young. Um, he said, socialism, isn't that like those zombies in those horror movies and it's coming back? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so it takes um, a whole bunch of socialists of various stripes from Cornell West to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and, of course, of course, uh, Naomi Klein and, of course, Bernie Sanders to set us straight and to point out that there are two things about socialism. First of all, uh, we did not inherit it from the Soviet Union. And secondly, it refers to a whole bunch um, of very specific social reforms that are desperately needed in American society. Uh, and, uh, you know, then it takes us through the history of socialism in the United States, which I won't go through, but it begins with Eugene Debs, goes on to the Great Depression and the, and the New Deal, um, and points out something I did not know, which is that the Republican Party was founded by communard socialists <laughs> in, a, in the town of Ripon, Wisconsin. And they end up with a, a young idealist um, in Virginia, of all places. So you can imagine what an uphill battle he has. His name is Lee Carter, who's um, an amiable but very fiery redhead who's trying to run for office in Virginia. Um, and at one point, a, a Democrat, when he's, you know, he's putting forward his proposals, a Democrat who's sitting behind him posts a placard of a hammer and sickle. <laughs> um, so you can see what, what uh, he's up against. But he is there to let us know that the young people of today are not nearly as scared of the word socialism um, as our, uh, you know, older generations, the ones that, that you and I come from, if they happen not to be um, on the left, and even if they are, I think that I find, it, you know, people of our generation and older find it very difficult to say the word, you know, I, they, they really just find it tough. Um and to understand that, A, you know, socialism has a long American history, and then to begin to speculate about what that, what's American form of, dis, of socialism, because it's different in every society, in every sub, subgroup, would look like. And it would look, they say, um, very much like Bernie Sanders in the sense that he has many times pointed out that healthcare, education, schools, uh, paving, you know, public roads and infrastructure, those are all aspects of socialism. And that's what it means. It doesn't mean Vladimir Putin um, who himself doesn't use that word very often either. Um, so it's a very lively uh, and interesting film. I, you know, as I said, grew up in two countries um, where uh, it's not a dirty word, uh, Israel and England, in fact, spent the first years of my life on a kibbutz. So I know from socialism and I grew up with a lot of guys who look just like Bernie Sanders. He, does, he really does look like a, a veteran kibbutznik and, and sound like one. Um, but uh, there's also a dark side to, uh, to the movie very properly, which is that they point out that the greatest enemy of socialism is, of course, corporate capitalism. Uh, and in particular, since uh, 2008, there are two things that they point out that I think are important. One is that obviously that uh, our legislators are 
isolated from the public at large and heavily propped up by corporations um, who are there to put the American public as deep into debt as possible. That's why we got the 2008 recession. Uh, and uh, it is that and the uh, right to strike, to take actually action um, that is emphasized in the movie, uh, running through it is the recent teachers' strike. Uh, and they um, very cannily focus on one, uh, I think, African-American school teacher, Stephanie Price, who is politicized and radicalized by that strike um, to uh, run for office herself and take a leadership role in politics, which is extremely inspiring and, and heartening. And where can we see the big scary S word? Uh, it can be seen uh, throughout Labor Day weekend, starting on Friday, September 3rd, um, in a, vari a variety of, of theaters and also on demand everywhere. So I suppose you're going to be able to see it on, you know, one of Amazon, Hulu, YouTube, or any any of those. So uh, I do recommend it highly. It played at Hot Docs and AFI Fest uh, recently. My favorite quote from the film, socialism is as American as apple pie. The big scary S word with AOC, Cornel West, Naomi Klein, Bernie Sanders, and a lot of people who don't know what socialism is. <laughs> Ella Taylor is our TV and film critic. She knows from socialism. Ella, thanks for your Labor Day pick. Thank you very much. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.